Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, the guy on my show today, I recently saw him. My friend Tim Grill's a huge fan, so I, I called my guest PR person, and I got us on the list. And I have never seen my guest in concert, and saw him at the Keswick Theater in Philly, and what a show. And what I liked about it was, you can tell he's a good guy, because he lets everybody do solos, except the drummer, which I want to find out about that, which is odd to me, but he's... Uh, he has a trouble is 25 is coming out December. It's where he actually uh, went and reinterpreted and re-recorded his classic album. And my guest is Kenny Wayne Shepard. How you doing, Kenny? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. So uh, tell me about the cars first. Yeah, I, I saw on your website, yeah, I'm, people, you can't see it because it's audio, but he has two sweet cars. What cars are behind you? Uh, well, the one right directly behind me is a Dodge Viper, and the one on the other side of it is a Dodge Demon. So... Pretty uh, high-performance vehicles, yeah. Now, does that go with the whole rock and roll person? I mean, the blues person? I mean, what? how did you get into cars? I've just always, I've been into cars as long as, uh, maybe even longer than, than guitars. I've just, you know, when I was a kid, I had Hot Wheels cars, Matchbox cars, and every pocket in my outfit, I had... Uh, I would draw cars in art class. I mean, I was I was really obsessed with cars. And uh, even early in my career, uh, before the first album came out, or you know, as the as the first record came out, people were saying, "Well, what are you going to do if the music thing doesn't work out?" And I, my response was always, I, "I'm going to race cars." So, thankfully, the music thing worked out, and so the cars uh, came as a result of the music so i'm grateful for that but you know i love both for sure cars and guitars that's pretty much my life besides my family well you know you, you at the keswick you had a bunch of guitars like how does how many guitars do you own i'm sure and how do you decide okay do you sit there going i'm taking them all or do you go oh, i'm gonna take six i mean what is what is the decision maker well i don't you know i don't know how many i have i never counted them I know I have a lot, but I know there's plenty of guys that have more than I do. Um, I just never felt the need to count them, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I guess I should probably go look at my insurance, the list on the insurance uh, <laughs> list, because, you know, they're all insured. So, um, but, uh, you know, I, as far as the tour goes, it's certain guitars for certain songs. I mean, certain guitars are I played on the record. I use this one on that song, so I'm going to use it live. Um, so that's mainly the thing. Some of it's tunings. Some guitars are uh, tuned differently than the other ones, again, for a specific song. And then, you know, at the same time, like some of my guitars uh, have personalities to them. Like they have, they're named, like they, they have a specific identity. Fans love that particular guitar. They want to see it played live, you know. Um, so it's a, kind of a little bit of all of that. Now, when did you, you started playing at a very young age. Tell me how you got into music, because it's unbelievable that this album is 25 years old, and you're, you know, you're not even, like, 50. You know what I mean? It's just, it's fascinating. But uh, when, when, when did you start playing? When did you pick up your first guitar? Well, I mean, I, I had little toy guitars when I was, like, four years old, you know, uh, little toy acoustic guitars that my grandmother would buy me that had nylon strings that made out of plastic. And, and I could play, like, Smoke on the Water, stuff like that, you know, real simple stuff on, on those guitars. Um, I got my first electric guitar at age seven, six months later, I got my first acoustic guitar and then just kind of very slowly started getting different guitars, you know, until I think I was about 
12 or 13, I got my very first Stratocaster, which was a really big deal for me because um, so many of my heroes played a Strat, you know. And then, and then, you know, I became a professional musician not long after that, signed an endorsement deal with Fender, and, and, and that really helped when it came to acquiring guitars, for sure. What do you think made you, you, you know, you started young, but what made you get to that point where you became a professional musician very young? I mean, everybody talks about a garage band or, or people sit there and they pick up a guitar. I mean, I took Guitar Lab in high school and I sucked. And I said, I'm never going to, I can't play. But what, what was, what made you, were you a prodigy? Did you consider yourself a prodigy, prodigy or what did, what did you, what made you so good? I didn't consider myself anything, but other people labeled me as a, as a, prodigy right and so you know i look back and i go okay maybe so um i mean there's a lot of kids nowadays i mean especially with social media it's like you, you can see all the stuff that you would never have been exposed to before so like you can see all these kids all over the world that are playing instruments and watch them do their thing and you go wow like but you know 25 years ago you probably would have never seen most of those people because it's just required so much more to get noticed back then. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I had the Prodigy label put on me and, and I accepted it. I never thought much of it. I just knew that like, I love to play guitar. I spent all of my spare time playing guitar and it's what I love to do. And then people started paying attention to it and reacting to it. And then opportunities were coming from that. And I was just getting to like, fulfill my dreams you know like just to pick up a guitar and play it on stage and have people show up to hear it like was like hitting the lottery for me you know and uh had no idea that it would turn into a, a career going on 30 years now now you said you're good some of your who are some of your guitar heroes you mentioned that earlier who are some of the ones that you really idolized and did you meet any of them Oh, yeah. I've met most of my guitar heroes if they're still alive, you know. I mean, it started with, you know, Billy Gibbons and uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and B.B. King and, um, you know, Muddy Waters. And a lot of blues guys primarily were my biggest heroes as far as guitar went. But I also love, you know, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of country music and stuff, too. My dad was on country radio for a while. And... Uh, and so, you know, I listen to that stuff, too, and, and there's a lot of great players that do that music and did it back then, like Willie Nelson and George Jones and, and even, like, Hank Sr. and Hank Jr. and, you know, all of those guys. But, you know, James Brown, listening to his guitar players and that funk stuff, really learning how to play that stuff really helped me develop my rhythm guitar playing skills and stuff. But um originally i was always really drawn to blues music when i wanted to play the guitar i wanted to play blues guitar solos what do you think drew, drew you to the blues because a lot of young kids aren't drawn to the blues like you know i'm, I'm 58 so the kids i know were you know they're drawn to metal or drawn to led zeppelin but what was it that just did, did you hear it and just say that's that's it that's what i want to do yeah, that's kind of how it was. I don't know. I was just drawn to it. And I think it was the emotion. Like, you know, when you play blues guitar, you're supposed to put your heart and soul into it. When somebody's doing that, I think, you know, it makes you feel the music. And uh, I think I felt it at, at a young age. You know, even if I couldn't relate to the lyrics, I could relate to the feeling that it made me feel when the guy was playing guitar. Um, and I was just drawn to that. Now you did uh, the trouble is twenty five is coming out. Uh, you, you when I saw you, it was the trouble is tour. Tell me about the first recording the trouble is, and then tell me about 
this new recording, because I love when musicians go back and once again, you're 25 years older. So what you wrote then probably has changed some what you see now. But tell me about the first recording. How, you know, how, first of all, how easy was it for you to get a record deal? You got, you got sponsored by Fender, but did you get a record deal pretty easy? Um, well, I, I don't know. You know, easy is a subjective term. I mean, some people would say, oh, yeah, he, it, it happened easy for him. But, like, there was work that went into all of this. You know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, I, the trajectory of my career was, uh, you know, I got my electric guitar at seven. Um, by the time I was 13, I played on stage the first time. When I was 14, I made my first demo recordings. 15, I formed my own band and started playing live shows. Age 16, signed a record deal. Age 17, recorded my first album. That got released. First single went to number five. The album sold half a million copies really fast, went on to go platinum. And then came Trouble Is, right? Um, but there was a lot of work. That's just like, those are bullet points. But there's a lot of work that, that went in between all of that to get to that point. Um, you know, I would say it certainly was not the American Idol experience where, you know, you go and you compete on television uh, for however many weeks. And then the next thing you know, everybody in the whole country knows your name. Uh, it was definitely a lot more work than than some of the the young people are able to do nowadays and, and achieve success. And I don't hate them for it. It's like anybody, if you got talent, man, you got an opportunity, take it, go for it. You know, just put your all into it for sure. Now, what do you think with trouble is, what do you think it clicked that made it so popular? I mean, and, and how do you, how do you deal with that? Cause once again, you know, you're a young guy. I mean, I was in college at that age and I was, you know, hanging out at parties and taking biology classes. But how is it, I mean, how? Do, what do you think people, did people love it because they loved you or the music? Or what do you think really made that album click? Well, I mean, I think it's quality music, which is what I always wanted to make. I set out to make quality music, timeless music, stuff that people, it was real and people could resonate, not, not trying to be too contrived or anything like that. I wasn't trying to be a pop star trying to make real music so you know what's interesting is you got to understand like all the stuff that's going on at that time it's like that was right around the time that like grunge music was coming out and and taking over and like hair metal was on the out and then grunge was coming in and there was a huge shift in in genres and and uh and, and in the industry in general and and right around the time, you can just look historically, um, and I think we're probably going about to go through the same thing right now. Um, but when music becomes so saturated, like whatever the popular thing is at the time, becomes so overly saturated that then it all starts to sound the same and it all kind of runs together and then it sounds like there's nothing unique anymore, then that's the that's like the precipice of like you know change and so it's like something big is something different is coming but there's this window of opportunity where they're tired of what's popular but nothing else has come along but they want something more they want something real to sink their teeth into and they start looking around and that's when they find you know nowadays that's when they would find like vintage rock and roll classic rock blues you know, old school country music, all the stuff that, you know, from decades ago, uh, because they're trying to find something real because they're just not connecting with what's happening at the moment. And the next big thing hasn't come along. So it was right in the middle of that shift between like hair metal 
and grunge and people were like you know trying to find some other stuff and i think blues was on the upward trajectory for the moment and people were looking around going hey what's this all about and then you know i was a young person so young people were able to get into it because it wasn't like some guy that looked like he could be their grandfather up there <laughs> thinking about how his baby done him wrong it was like i was a young person singing you know songs that hopefully i thought a lot of people could relate to that we wrote you know it was kind of just about real life stuff um, and but I think seeing a young person doing it made it a little more acceptable for the younger generations, my generation, into the genre uh, as a result of that. Now, as you're getting bigger, how do you change on stage? Because I have a background in stand up comedy, and in the beginning, you're nervous, you're in front of eight people, you're nervous, and then as you start getting bigger and the crowds, you're getting in front of 200, and you try to stay the same, but then you start getting nervous because it's 200, not eight people. How is it for you? Because as your crowds are bringing, going up, and now I know you're, you know, you're an amazing guitarist, and you know, you can, when you do a solo, people are all hanging on the edge, but did you fight those nerves as your career was getting bigger and bigger, and you were like, oh my God, this is, this is a lot of people that are seeing me. You know, I, once it got to the point where I wasn't scared to get on stage, like uh, when I got on stage the first time I was 13 years old, I was I was nervous. Like I, I did not know how to, I remember thinking very clearly, this is going to go one way or the other. I'm either going to like fail spectacularly and I'm never going to do this again <laughs> or it's going to go OK, you know, and it'll give me some confidence to move forward. And thankfully that night went OK. And that's what. That gave me the confidence to move forward. Once I realized I could get on stage and play my instrument and not get booed off the stage, then it kind of like took away the fear of it for me. And so it really didn't matter much the size of the crowds. Plus, the bigger the crowds, the actually, you know, there's you play in front of 80,000 people. I mean, dude, there's tens of thousands of people that are so far away from you. It's like you, you, you're doing everything you can to connect with them because they're so far away. So, I, you know. I don't think that the bigger the bigger the crowd, the more intimidating it is. You know, you just get out there and do your thing. Man. People are there to see you play, and uh, and I always wanted to get out there and just try and play my best. Now, how did you put your band together? I mean, when when I saw you, I mean, your band, everyone was stellar. I mean, you had a trumpet player. I think landed a note for like eternity. I'm like, I don't even know how this guy's breathing. But how do you how do you pick how did you pick your band and do you change them out through the years or how do you do that? Well, we kind of rotate, like we've done a lot of different things over the years. Like when we first started, it was like, you know, drums, bass, keyboards, guitar, rhythm guitar, lead vocals. Then for a while, there was no rhythm guitar. Then for a while, there was no keyboards and no rhythm guitar. So it was just guitar, bass, drums, vocal. And then and then we'd bring the keyboard back. And then uh, we'd bring a rhythm guitar player back. And then we had horns on some songs on some records. And then we'd have horns come like and do like a one-off show or a weekend of dates with us. And and then we had horns full time. So to me, it's like I, I kind of like mixing it up. Um, I have found that every time I add or subtract an instrument or a personality, it changes the dynamic and it changes the approach and it can be, it, it can all be a positive thing depending on how you look at it. It's like having the horn guys. We currently, we don't have the horns in the band. Uh, but when we did, it changed the way that I had to play because you have two more people playing two more instruments. And so you got to weave around each other. So like, you know, I had to play less 
in some instances so that I wouldn't step on those guys. Um, but also it's kind of like, and when I found that we, when we went back to no horns, that then I found myself having to carry more responsibility musically and also playing with more fire and aggression. It was almost like, you know, the horn session can kind of soften things up a little bit. Um, and so I was like working harder, you know, um, without them. And so it's just cool, but it, by constantly shifting things around, it kind of keeps you on your toes as a musician. It keeps, uh, keeps your attention and it keeps things from becoming just too routine. Um, and the horn thing was interesting because for the trouble this tour, I had a real debate in my mind as to whether the horn should even be out on that tour. They were with us, uh, leading up to the COVID thing happening. Right. And I had put them on the last studio record on every song. So we brought them out on tour for the traveler tour. And, uh, and then when we were doing the trouble is thing and getting ready for that, I was like, there are no horns on this record. So I didn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring them out or not. Um, because there was no horns on the album in the first place. And I'm going, well, we're trying to recreate this record and there aren't horns on this record. Why would we have horns on the record on the, on, on at, at the show? But then at the same time I'm weighing, well, people haven't worked in like two years, you know, and let's get everybody back to work. So. So we brought them out and they did like first, you know, half of the, the trouble is tour. And uh, now we're not, we don't have the horns with us right now, but again, it's just different personnel, different instruments coming, going, all of those things. It just really kind of shifts the dynamic of the band around. It keeps everybody on their toes and focused in different ways. Why did you record it? And uh, we recorded what, what was your process in that? Was it because you're getting older because you've changed or, you know, it's a hit. And when you do it, people, you played the whole album, what what was the steps to saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, a lot of people are doing that now. And, you know, a lot of other bands, you know, they'll do it in front of, like, one of their hits albums in front of, like, an orchestra. You know, people are changing things up. What made you want to do a complete re-record of a classic album? Well, I think that, first of all, it was, like, so that we could have this moment where we're bringing some real attention and, and celebrating, you know, this this achievement i mean 25 years of anything is a big achievement it's quarter century especially when it comes to music quarter century of music that people are still listening to still enjoying today still buying tickets to show up and hear it being played i think that's a big achievement um so re-recording it helped us draw some more attention to that it helped us get reacquainted with the with the songs because we knew we were going to go do this tour so we had to get reacquainted with the songs anyways because some of these songs we haven't played that much over the past 20 years so re-recording it got us you know a, a deep dive into all the little intricate details of each song um, and then also it's just a good, it's good business, you know, it's good business case, like, uh, you know, to have another version of this record, um, that we can put out there and, uh, you know, that belongs to the arts. Now, Ballad of a Thin Man is on this, but it wasn't on the original. Tell me the story about that. Why that didn't end up on the first album and then why you decided to bring it back now. I mean, you, you, you toured with Dylan. What was that like when you toured with Dylan? Well, that's one of the reasons why we did a Bob Dylan song on the trouble is was from being on tour with him. And he was just so good to me and I was so young and impressionable. And he just like went out of his way to be so nice and so encouraging and talk to me every single day. And he just left a huge impression on me. And so I, you know, I wanted to kind of like honor him by doing some, you know, some of his music. So we did two Bob Dylan songs when we were in the studio and everything is broken is the one that ended up making it on the record 
but we did do Ballad of a Thin Man. It just didn't make it on the record. And so I thought it would be interesting. I'm like, well, we have to do something interesting, you know, to re-record this album. I mean, there's two interesting things here. One is when we recorded the record, you know, it was like, well, how close to the original do we want it to be? And what I ended up determining um, was, you know, people are really married to the sound of this record. They've been listening to it for 25 years. They're, they're likely very attached to the sound of it. So I think if you get too far away from the original, you're going to have kind of some people are going to maybe turn their nose up to it because it, sound, it doesn't sound like what, they wanna, what they're used to hearing. So we got really close to the sound of the original, but we left some things a little bit different and just so that when you're listening to the album you hear little things and you go oh wait that's different and you realize that you're having a new listening experience but when you first hit play you your brain registers that's trouble is it sounds familiar that is you know what record that is and it, and so you know then you realize you're having a new listening experience the other thing was which is interesting because i've been hanging out around a lot of sports guys you know lately and 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 you look at like people uh athletes and athlete a lot of athletes especially in the nfl it's like they have a window right and once you get to like you know your your early to mid 30s it's like in the nfl you're considered to be old you know and you can't perform like you did when you were in your 20s but i'm looking at what we do we are professionals in our field right and so i think it's really interesting that at age 45 i'm 45 noah's i think in his very early 50s and I was a teenager and Noah was in his early 20s when we did this record. But we're middle aged, if you will. And uh, and we're still performing at the same level, if not better than we did when we were in our teens and early 20s, you know, and and we're professionals. And so it's just interesting to draw that kind of like comparison between like professional athletes versus professional musicians and how we're expected to and a lot of times able to still perform at, at the highest level um, that we were capable of when we were so much younger. So there's that. Uh, but doing the Ballad of a Thin Man track, I thought would make it interesting for people because they didn't know that that song was meant to be on this record. And since they have the album, the original album, and you know when they go to get this one, I wanted to give them something new, but not something unrelated. So we gave them something new that was completely related to this record. It was actually intended to be on the record, but it just didn't make the final cut for the album. And so this is a song that, you know, that they never would have had otherwise that was actually intended for this album. So I think it's an interesting thing to offer to the fans and a little window, a little window into like, you know, behind the scenes stuff that, that takes place. Now you have a video out for true lies. How do you decide? Like what, what, What's your process of putting a video out? And I'm sure the video, the whole game has changed in videos. I mean, back in the day, they were so expensive, and now people can shoot them in their camera. So it's great for the creative mind because you're not going, oh man, I got to spend 100000 on a video. I can do this. Right. But what made you choose to put True Lies out? Well, for me, if I had to look back on anything, I mean, you never know. Like, you, you don't know in the moment because it's all new. <clears throat> but if you look back, if you look at like numbers, Especially like streaming numbers, because that stuff didn't exist back then. So you, the only performance you could you could see was album sales, and then how many spins you were getting at radio if you decided to release a song as a single, right? And True Lies was never released as a single. And in retrospect, I think it should have been, <clears throat> because if you look at streaming 
numbers, which we have now, that song has been streamed. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of, of times people have listened to that song. But it's clearly a favorite of people, right? And back then, nobody thought to release it as a single at radio, but I think it probably would have performed really, really well as a single. Um, so again, but you know, today, nowadays, it's like a lot of people put out videos. It's like lyric videos are kind of the thing to do. Um, it's not necessarily always this big elaborate music video and, you know, you may have some, you can do a multi-camera shoot with like a, a couple of, or a few cell phones now, which is like never possible. You got drones that can fly up and get these crazy shots that your kid can be flying the drone doing the footage for you or whatever. It's like, you know, before you had to rent a crane or a helicopter, it's like so much has changed with technology. It's pretty crazy. Now you said there's a few differences in the the new give me give me a few examples of the differences and, and why you well, decided it, to do that a lot of it's subtle it's like you know just a, a lick played differently or noah slightly singing a verse just the phrasing is a little bit different or maybe the me, the melody has been just altered ever so slightly just little things that like like you could like what I wanted to happen is like you, you put it, the album on and it feels like your brain just registers that trouble is and it feels like you know, the record you've been listening to for 25 years and maybe you're sitting there listening and like cleaning the house. And then all of a sudden you just hear something different and it all, it just grabs your attention. You're like, wait a minute. You know, I don't remember that lick being like that or that little thing being sung like that. Um, you know, just little nuanced details that are slightly different because we did a version, we did two versions. We did a version where we played the songs, you know, cause these songs evolve when you play them live over, over, 25 years and so like you know the solos change and the endings change and a lot of times you know the grooves change and you know maybe you play it faster now uh, or maybe you play it slower or maybe the drummer's doing all this stuff and maybe i'm doing you know so and so we did that we did the the album faithful version and we did like the evolution version but the more i listened to it i'm like i i, I felt like it the most appropriate way to go was to not alienate the character of the original recording because that's what people fell in love with and if you go too far from that they go oh gosh it's almost like maybe you just ruined the original because like the vibe is is so different that it's not what what they're used to hearing it's not what they want to hear so we decided to kind of recreate the vibe of the original how has your writing style changed over the years because once again when you're 18 and now you say you're 45 you know so it's it's your middle age, as you say, you know, I call you a young, young buck. Um, when, how do, how's your writing style changed over the years? Have you really evolved? Are you happy which way it has evolved? Well, I think it's just grown, you know, like the more you do it, it's like a muscle. It's like the more you do it, you know, the stronger it is. But ultimately, the approach has always been the same. We just try not to write songs that are over people's heads. We try not to write songs that are too gimmicky. We try just to write about real life, real experiences, uh, you know, keep it simple and direct, have good choruses, have melodies, have write stuff that people want to sing along with. Hopefully it'll stick in your head, you know, but to surround myself with people that I believe are better, even better writers than I am. Uh, it's kind of like playing with musicians that are better than you. It's like, 
it can do nothing but make you look and sound better than you are, you know, and it can it inspire you to be better. So that's what I try. You had mentioned COVID earlier. What was it like when you found out you would have to get off the road? Because once again, it's, it's in your blood, you're a musician. That's what you do. You're used to that. What did you sit there and use it creatively? Did you spend more time with your family? Did you sit there and go, well, wait, what am I going to do now? You know, I don't, I don't like gardening. I'm used to being on the road. I mean, what did you, what, what was your reaction to it? And did you think it would last as long as it did? I don't think anybody knew that it would last as long as it did. It was literally a week by week a month by month waiting process. We're in a holding pattern. You know, everybody had tours booked. Everybody had tours canceled. Everybody had tours rescheduled over and over and over again. And just when you thought maybe we're going to turn the corner, then we didn't and we had to reschedule. And so for me, I got to say, I mean, I have a family. I have children. My wife and I have, I have a big family. It's a, the biggest break that I've ever had from music in my entire life. And really, man, it was actually uh, on on one hand, it was a real blessing because I got to spend some really great time with my wife and my kids and uh, got to do things with them that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise um, because I would have been working. So it was like a, a curse and a blessing all at the same time. It was a really rough patch for a lot of people, for all of us, really. I mean, it was just like, who saw that coming, you know, uh, and it's still having ripple effects without a doubt. Um, but I, I always try and like be optimistic or as optimistic as I can and make the best out of any situation. I think that we did as far as our family goes. And as far as, you know, the career went, thankfully we were able to come back and hit the road. And this year has been a celebration. It's been a celebration of the return of live music performance. And it's been a celebration of the 25th anniversary of my second album. What was it like your first night back on stage? Because I got to tell you, I was uh, blown away. The crowds were just all the shows I've gone through since then. But what was it like that first night you went back and you went, is it just, it's like, baby, I'm back. Like you just walk on stage. You just knew the room was going to blow off. No, because it was so weird. It it wasn't like that. I don't think it was like that for anybody because, because it wasn't back to normal. Right. When we, when people first started getting back to work, it was not, back to normal like it's just now getting back to normal or whatever you want to call normal right but like there was still people like there were still people that were scared to show up and be in large crowds so you'd have a sold out show and you might have 20 percent of the seats empty because i don't know those people didn't want to be in a big crowd or they didn't want to have to prove they were vaccinated or they didn't want to have to wear a mask or they didn't maybe they the worst scenario happened. Maybe they passed away during, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it was weird. And then there's all, there was all these rules and protocols and things like that backstage and at the venue that had never existed before. So no, it wasn't like, let's just get out there and rock the house and it's going to be awesome because it was like, everything was like so weird and so different. It was a real adjustment to be honest with you. And, but then as it went on and as things started the to get better and people started to get more comfortable um, with the situation. And, uh, and now things are really starting to resemble some sort of normalcy of what was the pre pandemic experience of going to concerts with being able to just buy a ticket, show up and enjoy a show. Yes. Then now it's like, you know, whenever you started to turn that corner, then it really became like, 
these people are, everybody's so hungry for music. The, the artists are hungry to play it and the fans were hungry to enjoy it. And uh, I mean, not to say people weren't fired up, but just walking in the venue, like, you know, nothing had ever happened. It, it wasn't the situation at all. When you play live, how do you decide when you're going to do a guitar solo? And you change it up because, first of all, guitar solo must be so empowering because you know everybody's just watching you and going, oh, wow. But do you, I mean, how how do you do the guitar solo? Do you change them every night? Do you sit there and just go on a riff when you when your mind goes, wow, I want to take it this way? How, do you, how does a, a guitar legend do a guitar solo? Uh, well, for me, I mean, it's different for everybody. I think, I mean, for me, I just, obviously there's, there's, there's a, there's a roadmap there. You have the album version of the song and the solo you decided to put on the record. And that becomes kind of the template for the, for the solo. But, you know, some songs evolve, like there's certain songs that maybe started off as a four minute long song on the record, but now it's turned into a, a, an extended jam situation. So you have the template, but then there's all this maybe four minutes, four minutes turns into nine and a half minutes, you know? And so what are you going to do? How do you add that other five and a half minutes worth of music? Well, that's all improvisation. That's where you take all kinds of liberties, man. You just see where the music takes you. So, you know, you start with that, with your boundaries and your, your template, and then, you know, you just take, find opportunities to maybe steer it in this direction or that direction and see what happens. And it's trial and error. I mean, we, we're experimenting, on the spot in the concerts you know people show up and they don't realize it but we're trying new things every night and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and uh we just have to try it to find out where do you find it in your heart to let everyone else do solos i have a friend who's in a very big band and he's a drummer and he's never even been asked to do a solo you know like and you're used to but you're you're all your guys do solos but that's just something how you grew up and you said i want everyone to do it or I mean because it's very big harder to you because people expect your solo and then they get blown away by all these other solos too right well here's the thing like yeah I'm a guitar player right and even even I get tired of hearing non-stop guitar solos like at a certain point you know it's like it I mean at some point it's a breath of fresh air for to hear another guy take a solo instead of just guitar all night long and I think that's just being you know, a musical person, like I appreciate the musicality of other people and, and other instruments. And so, um, and also it's like, I, I try and hire, you know, really talented individuals, like people who are really great at what they do. And I think they deserve a moment to shine as well. Um, as far as the drummer goes, Chris, he prefers not to play a drum. So I've actually found that like most of the drummers that I've played with, if given the option to play a drum solo, at least in my band, they don't want to do it. They they choose not to do it. And I don't think it's like, I don't think they're intimidated. I just think that they're just humble players and, and they feel like, you know, they're there to drive the train, you know, to be the engine, you know, that takes us all down down the path, you know, and, and not necessarily trying to be flashy and, and be in the spotlight, you know. Um, it's not because they can't do it. I just think that, you know, they're just humble musicians and, and they don't want to be that guy. One final question. What is this, the future for you? Are, are you creating new music? I mean, are you have this tour. I mean, what do you plan in the next few years? Where is your, what are you going to give us? What are you going to bring us? Are you going to keep inspiring us? Oh, yeah, we got a lot coming. I mean, you know, the, the, 
25th anniversary of Trouble Is is bringing a new version of the album. It's bringing a documentary film on the making of the Trouble Is original record. Um, it's also bringing a live DVD concert from the very first show of the tour in my hometown in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, so just those three. Oh, and, and the very first ever vinyl version of Trouble Is, right? Um, so those four things right there are big, just surrounding the Trouble Is anniversary. But we have a whole new record that we recorded in February of 2020, right before the whole world shut down. And I've been sitting on that record the whole time because I did not want to release an album it, during a time when we couldn't go out and, and play the songs for the people. So we have a whole new record that's just waiting to be released that, of all new material that will probably come out sometime next year as well. And then we were just in the studio again uh, doing some recording last week or week before last um, that will probably be for a record that will come out you know, a year and a half or two years from now. So there's lots of stuff uh, coming down the coming down the line for the fans, and and a lot of stuff to keep us busy. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you for coming on. People go to KennyWayneShepherd.net, and if you get a chance when he's in your town, go because the concert will blow your socks off. I loved it. I, it was at the Keswick, and the Keswick has the most uncomfortable seats, but it didn't, we didn't think about it because they were on stage. So people go check them out. I'll go to my website, CooperTalk.net. Net. You can find over 930 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And also, you can find me on Twitter at coopertalk. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.